This conversation with the novelist Mohammed Hanif is the first in an audio series, Another Pakistan, recorded in midsummer 2011. It's a co-production of the Watson Institute at Brown University and the Asia Society. I'm Christopher Leiden in Pakistan with Mohammed Hanif. He is the journalist and deadly serious satirical novelist who wrote The Case of Exploding Mangoes, which was the catch-22 of the first Afghan war in the 1980s. There's a cloud of calamity and crisis hanging over the vast port city of Karachi in the summer of 2011. My guess in this conversation is that it takes a storytelling artist to see and show and tell what's really going on. This is open source from the Watson Institute at Brown University, an American conversation with global attitude, we call it. We came to Pakistan to see where the wars with Islam have led us, and especially to get the long view, not from the experts and analysts, but from artists who might give us the stories and images that last. Mohammed Hadith, your exploded mangoes, which I read two years ago, explained to a lot of us what was going on 20 years ago when General Zia and Charlie Wilson and William Casey and Ronald Reagan's CIA were firing up the jihadis to chase the Russians out of Afghanistan. When Osama bin Laden was a good guy on our side and we seemed to be on his. I'm hoping you can tell us what's going on now. Well, uh, what's going on right now is something that uh, that uh, everybody's... Uh, kind of trying to figure out Pakistanis as well as Americans as well as our neighbors uh, but having lived here in Pakistan uh, almost most of my life and having lived in Karachi I still find it very hard to figure out that what goes on on Karachi on a day-to-day basis and I've lived I've been a citizen of this city for for more than 25 years I started my working life here I fell in love here I got married here I'm raising a kid here and trust me, if somebody was to ask me what happened in Karachi over the last two days when you know, sort of more than 90 people died and there were neighborhoods uh, under attack uh, by other neighborhoods uh, and there were political parties clashing, uh, I will be able to give you some glimpses maybe. I'll be able to uh, give you, you know, sort, of, sort of very rough take on uh, what uh, has brought us here. Uh, so I can tell you what's happened, been happening in Karachi is that uh, uh, 25 years ago I moved here and when I mm, arrived at the airport and I sort of uh, went to the loo and sometimes in big cities like Karachi, uh, the real news that you don't get it in the newspapers and TV channels, you, you get it uh, from the graffiti on, on the on public uh, loos. And uh, I was told that I'm a Punjabi and lots of Punjabi economic migrants uh, come to Karachi looking for work. And I was clearly one of them. And the writing on the wall for me said, uh, go back to your villages, otherwise your mothers and sisters will be, you know, sort of screwed. And somebody had scrawled down kind of, you know, under it that we've... Uh, We've come back here from our villages to kind of, you know, avenge them. Now, this was just street banter. Nobody actually wanted to uh, do that. And uh, that was the time when when the traditional political alliances in Karachi, which comprised of, you know, sort of liberals on the one side and, you know, your, your marginal 
Islamists on the other side, and then you know sort of small ethnic groups here and there. Uh, those alliances were shifting. Uh, there was a new generation which was born in the cities. It went to schools in the cities, mm. and suddenly there was this population explosion where these uh, young men and women uh, who were completely urban in their outlook and uh, and they had no tribal uh, loyalties uh, they had like no roots kind of you know back in some some feudal uh, village and uh, similarly they had no baggage about you know sort of what of these uh, some of these traditional cultural things that we talk about there's no why should there be respect for elders, for example? Uh, why should there be uh, respect for extended families? Uh, why should women be kept behind the walls? All these concepts um, did not exist because these people were completely urban in their outlook. They organized, they formed a, a, a political party. Uh, and uh, as uh, happens with some of these political movements, that uh, in order to assert itself... Uh, it armed some of its people. Mm. And then what happens with some of these movements is that slowly that the small armed minority actually takes over the movement. So they are the ones who kind of run the strategy. They are the ones who run. Uh, and when, when through political means, when through elections, this movement took over this Pakistan's largest city. And some would say Pakistan's only proper city. Uh, so even when they came to govern the city, uh, they never lost their appetite uh, for street violence. So as a result, what happens is, and everybody who lives in Karachi kind of knows it instinctively, uh, that when MKM calls for a strike, what will happen is that in the evening, at about after about 5, 6 o'clock, some buses will be set on fire, 4, 5, 6. Mm -hmm. And that would be a signal to the transporters, people who actually run the city, who kind of, you know, man the roads, and they happen to be Pashtuns, that stay home. So all of them will stay home. Early in the morning, boys will come on the streets, there will be some shooting, random shooting, mm. uh, which would be a signal to the shopkeepers that don't open your businesses. And that's how, in a manner of speaking, 10 to 20 boys can bring this city of you know, sort of 18 million people to a halt. And this has happened so repeatedly over such a long period of time that people have kind of internalized uh, some of these things. Can I presume to give you a four-day impression of Karachi yes. as opposed to your 25-year yes. immersion yes. in Karachi? We got off the plane and immediately saw headlines like Karachi continues to bleed and burn, which was unnerving mm. a little bit. Mm. Second, though... We find ourselves in an old colonial city, deeply divided. We're living in a very privileged corner. The fighting is far away. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain cynicism about these battles that come and go, mm -hmm. turf wars, mm -hmm. political wars. At the same time, you sense a deep anxiety mm -hmm. about the implications for Pakistan overall. But finally, I sense what people don't mention directly, that it is spillover of 30 years of Afghan wars. People keep saying they didn't have handguns everywhere, or heroin everywhere, or kids without work mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. The population has grown by 10 million people mm -hmm. over those 30 years. Sometimes I think it's as if there had been an air war in the Adirondacks in New York. 10 million people had descended mm -hmm. on New York, living in camps in the street. Of course they would organize, of course they would divide, there would be some fighting, but we, we, we would acknowledge that it's 
it's it's fruit of the war. I think uh, it's a fruit of uh, sort of more than one wars, because you have to realize that the first major influx of the population into the city happened as a result of the partition. And uh, you uh-huh. also have to remember that nobody actually planned for it. Right. When they kind of drew those lines on the map, nobody, even the greatest of the leaders, Muhammad Ali Jinnah and Gandhi and Nehru and Mountbatten, nobody actually thought that these yes. people would have to leave their homes from India and they will end up in a place called Karachi. Nobody even heard there was a place called Karachi. Mm. So that was the first time that there was a war. Uh, and uh, as a result, you know, sort of Karachi received uh, and, and continued to receive right uh, up to the 70s refugees uh, from uh, India. Mm. And then, as you mentioned, when the Afghan war started, the Afghan refugees started to come in. Some of them settled into refugee camps, but as would generally happen in these cases, that they obviously would travel where, where the work was where they could find employment, and that place was Karachi. And uh, obviously before that, uh, Pakistan, uh, you know, sort of, uh, especially Pakistan's urban uh, centers had never actually seen automatic weapons. I sometimes talk to my friends in Karachi University, which is the oldest university here, like, you know, sort of major source of kind of all the political uh, leadership that comes into the city and some of the national leadership. And they would tell you that right till the mid-70s, when there was a brawl, when there was a major kind of, you know, conflict at Karachi University, what people would have is knives or bicycle chains. Mm. And I think the first kind of gunshot that was heard in Karachi University was somewhere in the late 70s. And come the 80s, like mid-80s and and late-80s, and this was like, you know, sort of uh, within the first decade of the Afghan war, uh, you know, you had major uh, Pathan and Mohajir clashes here. Mohajirs are the the migrants who would come from India, and Afghans and Pathans are, you know, sort of would either come from upcountry to look for work or they were Afghan refugees. So as a result... Uh, you have such a kind of, you know, explosive uh, mix of uh, people and problems. And since, and I think the main reason was that since there was, the civil government was very weak here. And I don't think any any government would have been able to, you know, sort of handle such an influx of population with any degree of competence. But it was very weak. So what happened as a result was that cities actually run by a very informal private sector uh, if you watch the news, people would call them gangsters, people would call them the underworld, people would call them the mafia. But basically what, we, what they provide is things uh, which uh, actually the local government uh, should be uh, providing, which is, you know, sort of mm. uh, they decide uh, the housing, who, who gets to live where uh, and how much they pay. Uh, they provide stuff like uh, water. Uh, and they, you know, sort of uh, run all kinds of other infrastructural things which a government would do otherwise. But here it's run by, you know, sort of private sector. And since the competition is so intense, so that private sector needs protection. So they have arms. And then they need political protection. So they're somehow form of one political group uh, uh, or the other. And some of them will... S- sit out like the huge, huge period of government sitting in a jail because that's the safest place for them because if they come <laughs> out, they'll be, they'll be uh, you know, killed. Do they still call them dacoits? 
They used to call them dacoits uh, in the rural areas. Bandits. Uh, 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 yeah. In, in Karachi, I, I don't know what they call them. They don't call them anything. They call them boys. <laughs> but, you know, this is fascinating to me. I was wondering if we should think of, you know, Karachi today as a sort of revenge of the 80s. Mm-hmm. This is the war spilling over. Mm-hmm. And this is where they come right. when they're driven out of mm-hmm. home. I'm told some of these Afghan kids make their living dragging magnets over over dirt in the, in the street and yes. it picks up yes. little fragments of metal which yes. when they accumulate enough they can sell but yeah. a pretty desperate uh, hanging on yes. uh, like that but then you suggest something else I mean maybe this is the revenge of the 20th century including partition yes. including all those lost years of the Cold War mm. including if I may say the, the militarization of American policy mm-hmm. a lot of chickens coming home to roost here Yes, and uh, I've seen and uh, hung out with some of those kids that you're talking about. And mostly it's not as sophisticated as that. Some of them might have magnets and some of them might kind of collect metal. But most of them collect uh, trash. There are thousands of them. According to one estimate, there are like, you know, sort of at least 60,000 just in Karachi. Mm. What they do is going around, going to rubbish dumps, picking up anything which uh, can be recycled, and then they uh, sell it. And most people, especially people from the kind of posh areas where you're staying, would think that, oh, they're either beggars or they are uh, drug addicts. Uh, But Mm. I've talked to most of them. They're not drug addicts and they're not beggars. They'll never ask you for anything, even when you stop and talk to them. Uh, And they're definitely not uh, uh, drug addicts. I've talked to them, you know, sort of uh, in some detail. They are basically workers. That's the only work that they can uh, find in this city because of, you know, sort of overpopulation. So from morning till evening, uh, they go around, you know, sort of collecting this rubbish and selling them. Mm-hmm. And they make uh, about, you know, sort of on a good day, 150 rupees, which is, I don't know, two and a half dollars or something, and which is almost like one third of the of, of daily laborers' uh, uh, wage. And I used to see that mostly they were either teenagers or kids. In the last couple of years, increasingly, it's, uh, it's grown men, some kind of, you know, elderly mm. uh, uh, men. Some are sort of uh, a bit enterprising. They've uh, uh, got bicycles now and they've got like more capacity to collect and carry uh, more, uh, more garbage. And there are people who've set up warehouses where they can go and sell mm. uh, this garbage. So, so there are people kind of, you know, who improvise on a daily basis to, you know, sort of uh, make, a, make a living in the city. Is there a language barrier or a social barrier in talking to them? Well, there is definitely a social barrier. They're they're collecting my rubbish and making a living out of it. So that's the clear social barrier. Uh, Most of them are Pathans, but since they've uh, lived uh, in Karachi for a while, so they speak a bit of Urdu and I speak Urdu. So it's not as if we cannot communicate. We can talk to each other. And as I said, I do talk to them mm. uh, uh, sometimes but their lives are kind of you know as different from you know sort of uh, uh, my life as uh, anything uh, anything can be it's just uh, unimaginable that we are uh, not only kind of you know we live in the same city that we are citizens of the same country some of them can only take a shower when they go to this uh, this sea view uh, beach which is really really filthy but that's the only place where they can, you know, sort of take a bath. So sometimes I see them in the morning, they kind of they go in there with their clothes on because it's so hot and they kind of, you know, 
jump around the water for a while and then they kind of get out and start uh, collecting uh, rubbish again. It's fascinating to me mainly because, you know, we speak of these mega cities, the cities of the future, 20 million and up, as a kind of natural phenomenon of the 21st century. Mm. Uh, but of course, they're thoroughly man-made events yes. uh, brought on by economics and war yes. and politics, I suppose. I want to ask you, too, about the coming apart of this U.S.-Islamabad official Pakistani relationship. I mean, it's, it's a very, very uh, dysfunctional marriage at this point. It may last forever, mm. but it's getting pretty nasty when the U.S. refers to the murder of uh, Salim Shahzad, for example, as barbaric, mm -hmm. and when they're, when they're holding up on almost a billion dollars of military aid, mm -hmm. and the Pakistanis are saying, you know, uh, we're not running your errands anymore. Mm -hmm. um, what do you make of that? Well, I think it's, a, it's some kind of build-up to... Oh, whatever you want to call it, the, the end game of the Afghan uh, war, or, or as, they, as they see it. And that's how uh, their, I think, stance is uh, hardening. And what, what they've been doing is actually um, Pakistan army has, on the one hand, during this war, uh, they've been taking American money. Uh, they've been fighting their uh, battles, some of them really stupid ones. So what happens is that on one hand, you're stoking this thing that America is the enemy, America is the enemy, right? On the other hand, you're not actually fighting this war with America. You're fighting it for them, you know, and you're getting paid to do that. You don't really believe in that war. So what happens is that when you keep telling people these stories, 10 years on, America is the enemy number one. When this started, America wasn't. India was our enemy number one. Mm. But now you ask anyone, uh, America has become our enemy number one because that's exactly what you've been uh, uh, telling uh, your people. So now what you started telling your people and now you think that, oh, since all the people believe that America is our enemy, so we also have to kind of join in uh, that chorus. Otherwise, we'll be alienated even more than we are. Do you understand how stupid this is? But that's exactly <laughs> what but that's exactly what has happened. Now how can you have an army where you're supposed to conduct joint operations, right? Yeah. With the Americans against Taliban or against whoever, and most of your cadres actually believe that no, America is the enemy. Why are we fighting uh, uh, them? Come back to the probably flawed idea of a bad marriage. Mm -hmm. I'm still not quite clear about the feeling. Is it the feeling of a, a kept woman uh, and an abusive husband uh, and she's justifying herself with the kids by beating up on the old man? Or what? I don't know. There are like lots of misogynistic parallels uh, that have been kind of drawn uh, according to uh, you know, sort of various, various analysts. I, I don't really know. I mean, the idea of marriage, uh, at least, however bad a marriage is, it might have started at some point with love, let's say, if it was a love marriage. Or even if it was an arranged marriage, it might have started with an, sort of an idea of, you know, of bringing two families together and raising, like, you know, sort of healthy children together. <laughs> so I, I don't think it, it had, like, any of those noble, good intentions to begin with. 
mm-hmm. right? I mean, they came together because Pakistan, you know, army, Pakistan establishment was ready to kind of, you know, take money from America and be its ally in in the Cold War. Did Pakistanis really ever in its entire lifetime sat at their homes wondering, oh my God, uh, this com- we are going to be taken over by communists. It never happened. You go and ask my generation and you go and ask people who came after that. It never, never, ever really happened. Did Pakistanis ever kind of sit at home and worried that, my God, we are going to be taken over by Taliban? That notion never, ever, ever happened. Uh, because uh, because those were not really uh, mm. our problems. Mm. Because they were not really what was threatening us. There were other things, you know, which were consuming us. There was sectarianism and there was poverty and there was like, you know, sort of uh, this huge vulgar uh, class difference. There was a kleptocracy, this people who kind of, you know, successive governments, generals, politicians, uh, uh, they have kind of, you know, uh, they've basically held this country as kind of hostage and kind of, you know, basically taking the money from here, left, right and center to line their own own, own pockets. Uh, so those were our problems. I don't think mm-hmm. communism was ever our problem. I don't think we were ever in real danger of being taken over by uh, by Taliban. Whereas, whereas these are these are the two uh, biggest wars that uh, that we have fought. So why would people believe in these wars when they know that there's a certain uh, uh, military class and there's a certain political class which is being paid to fight these wars and then they're also being made capable, they're being protected by the United States and by the other kind of, you know, sort of European powers so that they can, you know, maintain their kind of stranglehold uh, over the country's uh, resources and, 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 and so that a situation never mm. uh, arises where some of those kids that you were talking about, uh, that somebody can s- get up and claim that these kids should actually be in, in schools. I want urgently to ask you about this murderous crisis around free speech. Mm. Salman Tassir... Mm-hmm. Governor of the Punjab, for crying out loud, mm. murdered by his bodyguard over mm. blasphemy. Mm. Salim Shahzad, mm. God rest him, mm. murdered, people say, the U.S. government says, by the Pakistan army, ISI, for knowing too much about the Taliban and mm. the ISI. Mm. Uh, also a man, Sabah Dastyari, mm. an academic, people have called him the Noam Chomsky of mm. Pakistan, mm. but killed for his his sympathy with the Balochi Baloch, separatists. Yes. Um, this hurts. I, I, it's, uh, I've never felt so disgusted in Pakistan. I was at Salim Shahzad's funeral. After the funeral, as soon as I reached office, and I was still mulling over this, you know, sort of uh, how, to, how to write about this, how to talk about this, uh, when I get a phone call uh, about uh, uh, Professor Sabah uh, Dashtiari, who was not only a, a brilliant professor at Koyta University, but also a very, very popular teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with his own money, he had built a, a library here in, in, in Karachi. So I know that he was targeted uh, for being a Baloch nationalist, which he was. But he was much more than that. Mm-hmm. He was a teacher who had taught for 30 years. Generations after generations of students uh, loved him. Uh, he was one of very few people in Pakistan 
who wanted to invest in education in kind of making life better for for his uh, next uh, uh, generations i was uh, i was at a book bazaar yesterday trying to buy story books in urdu for my son mm. because for his summer school homework and i looked and i looked and i looked and the only urdu books uh, that i could uh, find was uh, these stories uh, there were lots of story books in in english kind of you know your regular children's story books but when i looked uh, uh, for urdu books all books without exception all story books were stories from the quran so and i bought some of them uh, they're not all very kind of dangerous or, or they don't corrupt the mind but i was trying to imagine a world where children grow up reading stories which are only from one religious text and there is no other story written by a man or a woman or or another human being uh, where everything is driven from this uh, one text mm. and i found that idea uh, quite uh, scary that when these people grow up what would their world view be how would they look at other uh, other human beings how would they look at people who don't share uh, their faith how would they look at people who share their faith but you know sort of uh, uh, but differ on certain uh, on certain uh, points uh, so th- those are the kind of scary things that have been going on in pakistan and since everybody is so focused on you know sort of on on these ongoing wars you know uh, that nobody actually has the time to sit down and think that what kind of people uh, we are uh, bringing into this world what are we teaching them how will they kind of uh, look at this world when they grow up uh, reading all this stuff so talking about sabah dastyari he was one of the very few people who kind of you know realized this and who uh, and who was committed uh, to investing his own time and his own energies uh, in in teaching you know sort of uh, our our coming generations and he was uh, and he was assassinated and uh, every kind of you know in balochistan if you look at the paper every day i i challenge you that there will be at least couple of people and they're all professionals lawyers you know student leaders doctors teachers uh, who are being uh, picked up tortured and and killed uh, brutally how does one square that with at the same time this what seems a great liberation of expression on television channels all over the place in film in comedy you praise god write freely and speak freely mm-hmm. uh where are we going well i think a few things have happened a whatever you see this 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 flowering of the arts or or whatever you want to call it uh, this is happening within a bubble which is a very middle class which is very very uh, mainstream uh it doesn't really uh, uh challenge kind of you know any of the any of the basic uh, paradigms of, of this uh, this society uh it's also somehow uh, linked to the sort of mainstream commercial activity sponsored by you know either either multinationals or you know sort of bankrolled by uh, western funded uh, ngos so so most of it is uh, it is happening within as i said within uh within a bubble uh but yes because of the technology uh, there is sometimes appears to be 
uh, a sense of kind of you know uh, freedom and a sense of being able to say whatever uh, you uh, want to say but as it has been proven again and again and again that it has uh, its own limits as we've seen with the with, with Salim Shahzad as we've seen with Professor Sabah Dashtiari as it's happened uh, my other journalist uh, uh, colleagues uh, uh, in the past they've been routinely picked up by the ISI tortured and then let go and it's only that all the journalists based in Islamabad if you're going to Islamabad ask them you know sort of ask them off the record if they're reluctant and 90% of them tell you that it has ISI written all over it Salim Shahzad's murder Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's it's the ISI who have to prove that they haven't done it because they've, they've done these things exactly in the same style. Yeah. You can, you know, sort of call out and there'll be five people who will come out and on the record tell you that this is exactly what happened to them on what date. And they'll name you names and, and give you uh, give you everything. Uh, but uh, but sadly, we are in a situation where, you know, sort of uh, there are certain institutions of the state, there are certain... Uh, certain parts of the uh, the establishment uh, which uh, cannot be uh, touched by anybody, be it the courts, be it the political parties, mm-hmm. and or, or be it kind of you know even the media. Media knows uh, its its limits. It's it's very noisy. It's very boisterous. You kind of you know sit and watch it, and you say, "My God, they can talk about everything," but no, you're wrong. Uh, there are certain things that they cannot talk about yeah. within first minutes of. Salman Taseer's murder, the biggest TV channels, their mainstream presenters were sitting there and saying that, oh, a murder is a bad thing, but blah, 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 blah. So it's not as simple uh, as uh, all of it, you know, sort of seems. And now the ISI's uh, sometimes friends in Washington uh, call the Shahzad murder barbaric. That's a strong word. And the New York Times editorially has said that the ISI is connected directly to the Taj bombing in mm. Mumbai. Mm. I mean, how much can the ISI take without blinking, without, without explaining themselves? Well, it can take a lot because it doesn't need to explain uh, themselves to anybody. They used to occasionally had to explain themselves to Americans because they were their paymasters. Uh, now it is quite ridiculous that the Taj uh, uh, hotel attacks happened, you know, quite a while ago, and Americans have uh, known all along, and they've never called out the ISI. Uh, at least a dozen journalists have been killed in, in very uh, strange circumstances. Some mm-hmm. of them for reporting for the first time about the drone attacks uh, in Pakistan. So basically, everyone believes, including uh, sort of liberal Pakistani journalists who themselves criticize the ISI. That when America criticizes the ISI, they're not concerned about journalists' human rights. They're not concerned that journalists are being killed in Pakistan. They're not concerned uh, that innocent civilians are being tortured uh, by Pakistani. Uh, they are uh, concerned that ISI is not doing their bidding in a way that they would want, uh, uh, want them to, to do it. Right. Uh, so that uh, actually complicates uh, the, the problems. Uh, ISI has never been criticized as much in Pakistan as it was criticized after uh, Shahzad's murder. Openly on mainstream media, journalists came out 
and told their own stories and they were you know sort of quite open uh, in pointing the finger that this is the place these are the people uh, who should be held responsible who should be uh, investigated now in this environment when america steps in and says that oh yes it was a very brutal murder and isi is responsible and uh, you know sort of through anonymous sources kind of uh, says uh, uh, it to new york uh, times uh, as well then suddenly people look at it in a different completely different perspective uh, then they would start asking so what about raymond davis then uh, wasn't those murders uh, brutal uh, wasn't kind of you know an open and shut case that Raymond Davis, to- the CIA guy who ran amok in Lahore. Yes, suddenly uh, ISI, which is kind of you know being blamed for killing and torturing a Pakistani citizen, suddenly turns up as this uh, as this entity which is standing up to the United States. Mm. So you do realize that how, how kind of, you know, messed up uh, uh, the situation uh, is. Uh, so I think if anything good has to come out of it, it is that uh, this American uh, interference, this American take on everything uh, has to stop because uh, that completely plays on these, uh, uh, these perceptions which have kind of, you know, uh, uh, been and now perception has become the reality. As I said, ten years ago, they kind of started showing these seeds that America is the n- enemy number one, and uh, now, n- and now it is. Uh, I think uh, that this region, this country, uh, will not see peace uh, unless, kind of, you know, America somehow learns to disengage itself uh, from this region and goes back and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, and do kind of, you know, whatever they are good at might be kind of making Pirates of the Caribbean 10 or, you know, sort of a new Google Plus or or whatever it is that the world loves them for. It definitely doesn't love them for their military power. Last word to your American friends and readers, and they adore your work. What can Americans do? I think stay home. And those uh, who can't, uh, there was this wonderful book uh, written by Graham Greene. It's a very famous novel, but I've recently read it myself. And I highly recommend it to to every American who has even the remotest interest in the world outside America. It's called The Quiet American. I think they should, uh, uh, they should read it. And American leadership should definitely read it. About Vietnam. And saw it all coming. Yes, yes. And, and, and you re- read that book and you would think that... Uh, I was in Islamabad recently. I hardly ever go to Islamabad. And uh, uh, that's exactly what I was remembering, uh, that book. And I'm sure people who kind of go to Kabul or Iraq or wherever, uh, uh, wherever they follow American adventures, they should, uh, they should read uh, that book and, uh, mm. and uh, you know, sort of, uh, yeah. Beware the innocent American. Yes, the yeah. quiet innocent American, yes. Mohammed Hanif, it is a huge privilege to meet you and to talk with you and to hear from you. And I hope we'll do it often again. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Ben Mandelkern produced and edited this conversation in Karachi with Mohammed Hanif, the author of A Case of Exploding Mangoes. Our series, Another Pakistan, is a co-production of the Watson Institute and the Asia Society. Zarmina Ansari is our producer in Pakistan. Thanks also to Bina Sawar of the Jung Media Group. 
The conversations continue from South Asia, but also online. Listeners, please feedback your views, your Pakistan, with a comment on our website, radioopensource.org. I'm Christopher Lydon. Thank you for being part of the Open Source Conversation. 